You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Greetings, everyone. Peter Maravellis here on behalf of City Lights booksellers and publishers and the City Lights Foundation. I'd like to welcome you to City Lights Live, the virtual dimension of our events calendar. Tonight, we celebrate the publication of yet another City Lights title, As many of you know, we are a publishing house as well as a bookstore. We have over 200 books in print, from poetry to literature and translation to books on current affairs, always with a progressive political outlook. We publish a variety of titles. We are thrilled to be celebrating the publication of $20 and Change, Harriet Tubman and the Ongoing Fight for Racial Justice and Democracy. It is authored by Dr. Clarence Lusane with a foreword by Kali Holloway. Dr. Lusain is an author, activist, scholar, and journalist. He is professor and former chairman of Howard University's Department of Political Science. He's been a political consultant to the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation and a former commissioner for the DC Commission on African American Affairs. He frequently appears on MSNBC and C-SPAN and was invited to the Obama administration to speak at the White House. He's the author of numerous books, including The Black History of the White House, also published by City Lights, I might add, Dr. Lusain lives and works in the Washington, D.C. area. He's going to be uh, joined tonight by Justin Demange. Uh, a few words about Justin. He is um, chairman of the Before Columbus Foundation, administrator of the American Book Award, and host of the radio broadcast New Day Jazz, a member of the board of directors of the Oakland Book Festival. Mr. Demange is also a program producer at the African American Center of the San Francisco Public Library. So with $20 and change, Dr. Lusain places Harriet Tubman's life and legacy in the context of a long tradition of resistance, illuminating the ongoing struggle to realize a democracy in which her emancipatory vision prevails. So before we begin, as is customary before each event, I'd like to take this moment to remind everyone, we are beaming to you from the unceded ancestral grounds of the Ohlone peoples, also known as the San Francisco Bay Area, We would like to take this moment to acknowledge those who have come before us as stewards of the land and offer our respect. So without much more ado, please join us in welcoming Dr. Clarence Lusain and Justin Demange. Welcome to City Lights, gentlemen. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Peter. And uh, Clarence, uh, thank you for being so generous with your time and sharing your evening with us. And speaking about your new book, uh, $20 and Change, I feel that this comes at a moment in our collective history, not unlike triage, battlefield triage, and that the book itself, your book, $20 and Change, is very much like a laying on of the hands to what is, in fact, sacred wounds. I would like to get into some of the medicinal impulses that may have brought you to this extraordinary work, its continuity and depth in description of uh, struggle towards self-determination. But before we get into that, I'd like to start with something that I think will help us talk in a more concrete way about some of the specifics that you direct our attention to. And that has to do with what has always been 
I believe, Uncle Sam's Achilles heel, which has been the historical failure to accept black leadership in the United States of America, and in particular, black leadership on the subject of human rights. Now, more poignantly in, in your authorship, we have the focus here with Harriet Tubman, but more recently in the 20th century, we think of people such as uh, Du Bois and King, leaders who were at one time eager to represent the ideals and the promise of the United States only to uh, be uh, publicly uh, reviled and in the case of King assassinated in the case of Du Bois essentially chased out of the country. So with, with that in mind, perhaps we can begin there. Again, the, the historical failure to accept black leadership on the issue of human rights in the United States of America. How does Harriet Tubman fit in with that narrative and why is it important to revive and resuscitate her image at this critical time? Uh, thank you for that question. And uh, greetings everyone. Uh, thank you for uh, coming out and, and zooming in uh, to, to this discussion. So that really is a central question to what animated, animated me to uh, write the book. Uh, first, let me explain the title, $20 and Change. Uh, that comes from the decision in the last year of the Obama administration uh, by the Treasury Department to replace Harriet Tubman on the front of the $20 bill uh, and uh, to move Andrew Jackson to the back. Uh, there's still an effort to try to get Jackson off altogether. Uh, but that uh, putting her on the $20 bill raised all kinds of issues of what symbolism mean? How does narrative operate? Are we seeing honoring or are we seeing exploitation? And so I wanted to dive into a deeper explanation of both the paths that Harriet Tubman took to not only racial justice, uh, gender equality, but as you indicate more broadly, democracy, uh, relative to and compared to uh, Andrew Jackson, who not only was a slave trader and uh, a slave owner, but uh, was personally involved in massacres of Native Americans. You couldn't find two more different uh, historic figures. And so Harry Tubman uh, wanted to look at uh, not just what she did uh, during that slave era, but the entire arc of her life where she was engaged in women's rights. She was engaged in suffrage movement. She had organized to help the poor. So uh, all around effort on her part, which I designate as the struggle for a real genuine democracy. Mm -hmm. And so uh, if we look at her life in that light, I think it gives us a much deeper kind of context uh, for looking at, as you point out, uh, what does leadership mean and how does that evolve? Uh, and I would argue again, particularly with African-American women, and you look at Fannie Lou Hamer, for example, uh, yes. in the book with a quote from her, which again is a person who came up from the real, real, real oppressive uh, nature in, this, in US society, uh, and became not just a national voice, but a global voice That's for right. human rights, for democracy. And so I wanted to, again, focus on Harriet Tubman 
at that moment or in this moment uh, because of what she represented. But then when we look at where we're at today and the paths, the crossroads between expanding democracy or down the path to encroaching authoritarianism, Harriet Tubman, I think, is an icon uh, that we can call upon uh, as inspiring to make sure that we go down the right path and we really do take up the fight uh, against all of the anti-democratic forces that are arrayed against us at the moment. Uh, a moment ago, you mentioned something that I think is uh, critical to our, our discussion of, of your book, and that has to do with the, the elevation of Black leadership to a Black internationalism. That is to say, the articulation of the human rights struggle inside of the United States being parallel or united with human rights struggles th throughout the world. Now, 50, 60 years ago, the American left was deeply hewn to a, a, a similar conception of, of uh, elevating the civil rights struggle to a human rights struggle. I believe uh, in his final return from the continent of Africa and uh, from some travels in Europe, uh, Malcolm X was particularly uh, focused on, on, on this point, that is to say uh, that the struggle within the United States for Blacks in particular would only be relieved through the unity with Black struggle elsewhere. Is this amplification of Black struggle in the United States part of the reason why uh, Black leadership has been turned around so frequently, whether it's uh, uh, Tubman, uh, or I mentioned Du Bois and, 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 and King I, a moment ago, Malcolm X, but also uh, Mary McLeod Bethune and, 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 and many others. I won't go down the entire roster, but to that question, is that part of the difficulty here that, 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 that Black leadership almost invariably elevates the human rights struggle to an international one, something the United States won't countenance? So I think so there's a long history of what I would call Black internationalism, uh, going back to even before the U.S. became the U.S. Yes. Uh, and then you look uh, after the country uh, began in the late 18, uh, 1700s, uh, the Haitian Revolution, which right. was significant not only to people in Haiti, but to people of African descent uh, around the world. And yes. certainly African-American leaders in the 19th and 18th century uh, called upon uh, that spirit of revolution that happened uh, in Haiti. And then it continued the development of Pan-Africanism uh, in the last part of the uh, 1900s and then picked up by everybody from Garvey to Du Bois. Right. Uh, and also those interactions where Black people travel uh, and engage. And the language of human rights became central, uh, particularly as the NAACP developed uh, and the Garvey movement developed uh, in the teens, in the 1920s and 20th century. And Black people were there when the United Nations was uh, being built and being developed. People, uh, everyone from uh, W.B. Du Bois to Paul Robeson to Ralph Bunch uh, to others who saw that it wasn't just a struggle in the U.S., uh, but it was a global struggle and that African-Americans had take their struggle, act in solidarity with people, uh, but also use the 
uh, liberating language of human rights. And that has continued, as you pointed out, it continued in the 1960s, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, uh, Angela Davis, uh, others who in that period uh, went to Europe, went to Cuba, went to Africa uh, and bonded with uh, people around these struggles. Yeah. Uh, and in the context of all of that, again, I would uh, locate uh, Harriet Tubman who became really a global figure. Mm -hmm. uh, as, as some people know, uh, a lot of the work I do is uh, international. And I lived in Europe, I lived in, in Latin America, uh, in Asia, uh, and worked with human rights organizations and groups. And much of their attention uh, is focused on African-American struggle uh, for a lot of different reasons, but they're aware of the history, including people uh, like Harriet Tubman. So I think we're not always sensitive to uh, the struggles that are going on globally, but certainly people around the world are sensitive to, to our struggles. So in part, this book is written not just for uh, a US audience, but for an international audience as well. Uh, and particularly acute in this era where we see the attacks on the 1619 Project, the uh, misuse of critical race theory as a means by which to attack any teaching of history, uh, any effort at racial justice, uh, more than ever, we have to reassert what the history of this country is and find ways and means to counter this uh, authoritarian movement that really wants to shut down all of those discussions and all of that uh, history and knowledge. Well, uh, one of the great uh, elations of experiencing, you know, reading your book uh, comes from uh, the uh, uh, deftness and agility of your own imagination and, and literary style to connect these stars, offer this constellation and give us this picture, what you're describing now in terms of, of the alignment of international struggle. But you mentioned that uh, some of these facts uh, in, in, in recent times and certainly looking back over uh, the last several centuries have become obscured largely uh, through the peculiarly American idiom of denial, disavowal, uh, a radical unremembering that is a very engaged process of undoing history uh, and uh, some uh, attempt described in a sort of far right think tank manipulation of history, geography, information to try to guide collectively all of us towards some hideous material goal. <laughs> so my point here is the, the, the American idiom of forgetting, of radical unremembering, of this uh, denial and disavowal. As a Black historian, you're always up against this. Uh, could you talk a little bit about what you've discovered, not just within this book, but within your own experience and researches about how this mechanism works? Because certainly in popular culture, uh, it's, it's wildly effective, but this denial and disavowal here in the United States is, is more widespread than just popular culture, uh, isn't it, Clarence? Could you talk to us about that? Sure, it's, so I think there are a couple of things happening. Uh, so there's a denial of the history, uh, just simply that it doesn't exist. We will erase it, we will not teach it. Uh, Virginia, for example, had just proposed an education curriculum 
where they're going to talk about slavery, but not talk about racism. Uh, <laughs> how you could possibly do that, uh, I can't even imagine. And then we know in Florida, for example, in Texas and a number of places where they've described slavery as basically labor coming over from Africa. You know, some hmm. very wildly, wildly distorted uh, notions. Uh, and we have to push back against uh, all of that and put out correctives because uh, as a professor, I get students uh, who are coming in who are 18, 19, 20, uh, now students who are basically born after 2000. They really are millennial children. Uh, and they're not getting this history. They're not getting uh, an, an overview that really kind of lets people put all of our issues in a historic uh, context. So for example, uh, there's a chapter in the book called From 1619 to COVID-19. Mm -hmm. And what I talk about in that chapter is the issues that emerged around COVID and race where we know that brown people, black people, native people were not given the kind of access uh, that uh, was deserved and the kind of medical attention that was deserved. Right. But that just didn't start in 2020. There's a long history. Right. Uh, Harriet Tubman was injured while she was enslaved when she was a child. She was brutally hit in the head uh, and it caused her seizures and problems her entire life. Uh, which makes it even more remarkable when you think about what she accomplished. Mm -hmm. But what that tells you us is that Black people's lives, Black people's health was not relevant only to the degree that Black people could be used as labor. Mm -hmm. And so that didn't stop at the end of slavery, but continued through Jim Crow and continued post Jim Crow. Um, we see the disparities and we see that now. And there were a number of African-American doctors who pointed out this history uh, to demonstrate that it wasn't just kind of incidental and it wasn't an occasional uh, individual act, but that it's institutional and systemic. We have to understand that history if we're gonna come up with policies and resolutions. We can't think everything just started you know, a couple of years ago. So, you know, that's one of the things that I, you know, try to do in, in all of my writings is to give, you know, deep historic context uh, so we can see the evolution of these relationships, the evolution of these histories, uh, even with the issue of uh, Harry Tubman on the $20 bill. It did not start with the Obama administration, but you could go back decades where there were women who were raising issues of why were there only men on the U.S. currency. Black people were raising issues about some of the symbols that represented uh, racism uh, in the country. So there's a long history, uh, again, that we're often not aware of, but really is important uh, to understand these phenomena. Uh, one of the uh, sharp and well-defined points that emerges from your vivid portrait of, of Tubman is uh, an education for your readers that she was among uh, the many uh, roles that she played in her life was also a brilliant militant strategist or more, more specifically a military strategist and, and recently so honored uh, here in the United States uh, for her work in espionage. Could you talk to us a, a little bit about Tubman as a military strategist 
and and the uh, complexity of being honored in the, in the contemporary world for uh, for her work in, in espionage because there's quite a bit of uh, luminous contradiction let's let's call it uh, within right. that. Okay, so one of the things we should remember is that all the way until the end of the Civil War, Harriet Tubman was a wanted fugitive. So her any step she took into the South was at risk of being captured and put it back into slavery. Uh, but during the war, as the Civil War broke out, she uh, initially volunteered and then uh, later was contracted in a number of positions. She was a nurse, she was a cook, she did all kinds of uh, work, uh, but she also played a military leadership role. She was asked at one point to lead an a uh, convoy of hundreds, mm. hundreds of soldiers mm. uh, down the Kambahi River to basically push back the Confederates that were gathered in the area and mm. then to rescue people who were enslaved. Uh, she rescued about seven or 800 people who were enslaved. They just wow. went down the river, setting, you know, and military drove the Confederate. Uh, back. And she was the first woman, not black or white or anything, she was the first woman uh, to lead a military expedition and a successful one uh, at that. As a result of that, uh, you know, she was honored, which many would consider ironically, uh, by the CIA. There's a statue of her uh, right in front of the CIA building, which I'm not sure she would necessarily <laughs> embrace. Uh, given you know the history of you know what we know about uh, what the CIA has done, uh, but she you know played that kind of role. Now the other thing about that role is that she then uh, after the war fought for a pension. Uh, pensions were given to Confederate soldiers. Uh, these were individuals who tried to overthrow the country and succeed from the country. They were given pensions. Uh, so she legitimately applied for a pension because she really was contracted. She wasn't just doing it out of, she was doing it out of, she needed and wanted to, but she also was contracted. Uh, it took decades, decades and decades. Finally, it was a congressional act uh, that uh, ended up giving her a pension. Uh, was more a widow's pension for a second husband in the military. Uh, and that pension was $20 a month. Uh, mm -hmm. So, you know, that's an a, uh, irony uh, mm -hmm. to look at. But she was, again, multi-talented multi uh, individual that interacted in every single uh, moment in her life and in each era, uh, moving and trying to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. I, I, I mentioned uh, earlier in the conversation about the, uh, the far right think tank manipulation of, of geography, of information, disinformation, erasure, uh, and the relationship that it has with popular culture. Now, uh, oscillating between these two world historical figures, Harriet Tubman and Andrew Jackson, we find that Andrew Jackson within the popular culture, but also within the academy to a great extent, is handled with a pretty light touch. I mean, you know, they. They, they handle this, um, uh, uh, we'll just call him a leader for now, to what he led, I'll, I'll, I'll hand that to you to be more specific. But um, 
this phenomenon is is uh, part of uh, the the destruction of the cultural fabric of the United States itself, isn't it? I mean, when we allow someone like Andrew Jackson or more recently uh, Hamilton to be uh, celebrated and and uh, revered for things that they absolutely in life stood against, attempted uh, uh, to corrupt, led uh, absolute uh, unrelenting violence towards, uh, we're doing damage to the uh, entire society and the entire nation, aren't we? Oh, absolutely. And it's no accident that Jackson ends up uh, celebrated and ended up on the $20 bill. He was on other bills. There are statues to Jackson kind of all over. Uh, as, as many people know, uh, when uh, Trump became president, one of the first things he did was to put a portrait of Andrew Jackson in the Oval Office. And if you look at pictures of Trump signing bills and such, uh, you often see Andrew Jackson there on the wall. Mm -hmm. And Trump went to Andrew Jackson's home uh, in Tennessee. Uh, and it's not surprising because the language in which Trump understands Andrew Jackson is very much consistent with his own narcissism and his own kind of brutal way of dealing with uh, uh, relationships. And his antagonism uh, to rules and laws and policies and norms, which is what Jackson uh, was known for uh, after he became president. He simply ignored Congress when he felt like it. He ignored Supreme Court decisions when he felt like it. Uh, so that certainly fit in. Now, Trump didn't, I would say Trump probably not read a single page about Andrew Jackson, but there were people around him who understood the image and identity that Jackson could bring that mm. Trump could use for the base that he's been trying to build, uh, mm. which is, again, in complete opposition to uh, Harriet Tubman. That's right. That's right. Now, uh, I, I don't want to uh, overlook uh, one of the most important words here uh, in the title of, of, of your new book, again, $20 and change, uh, and that is democracy, which uh, in the history of, of, of the United States and its relationship to African America, to Blacks in America, has been a, a very much a, a, a two-faced proposition, Jekyll and Hyde principle and interest, you know, the struggle, uh, three steps forward, two steps back, this kind of thing. And uh, there are political thinkers today who uh, reject outright the participation in electoral politics. I'm thinking of people uh, whom we respect, like, like Frank B. Wilderson, for instance, or uh, Joshua Clover. How do you respond to that Position. I mean, obviously, you have a a, a, a view, and, and you'll correct me if I mischaracterize this. That is closer, I think, perhaps to someone like Vincent Harding, where, where we talk about the deepening of American democracy. His phrase, in terms of some of the goals of SCLC uh, and and the uh, voter rights registration drives and freedom rides in the '60s. Could you re re respond to? Uh, the rejection of electoral politics as a as a, a, a means towards 
Black self-determination. Why? How do you uh, receive those thoughts from 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 people, even those whom we respect a great deal? So I'm not unsympathetic to the frustrations and critiques that I think people have about electoral politics, and that there's no way you can look at the broad history of the Democratic Party and the Republican Party and not see ways in which. Uh, for decades, uh, they were compromised and played central roles in the oppression of Black people. But democracy isn't defined just by those two political parties or their entities. And it very much has been central to African Americans to marry electoral politics and movement politics and mm. not really see a wall or an either or kind of circumstance. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, uh, let me quote uh, Harry Tubman. In um, 1913, uh, when she was dying, uh, she was in her last week of life, uh, and there was a, a very important march coming up in Washington, D.C. Uh, for suffering. This was one of the most important marches uh, that occurred during that time and really was central to leading to the passage of the 19th Amendment. Uh, in that march, Black women were mobilizing to come. And there had been a back and forth. There were some white women who wanted Black women to march at the back of that march. Uh, and there was resistance. People like Ida B. Wells said, yeah, I'm not going to do that. Uh, and marched you know, where she was supposed to march. Uh, Harriet Tubman, literally about a week or so before she passed, was talking with one of the Black leaders, uh, Mary Talbert. Uh, who was one of the uh, women who was leading in the suffrage movement, uh, one, of the, one of the founders of the Niagara movement. Uh, mm -hmm. And she, her, some of her last words were, quote, tell the women to stand together for God will not forsake us. Mm -hmm. Now she literally is dying, but she understood that the suffrage movement would apply at some point to black people as a whole and to black women and that that was important. And so that movement has uh, been there uh, throughout the history of Black politics. Now, I have a personal story on that uh, because my grandmother was very active uh, around this issue in Birmingham, in Bessemer, Alabama. And she marched with King on the Pettus Bridge on those three different marches. Mm -hmm. uh, and I grew up with the stories of her talking about the importance of that. She passed away uh, at the age of 101, uh, but up until her end of her life, she saw that as a critical, important uh, part of Black people uh, being able to push for uh, rights and freedoms and all of that. Mm -hmm. So I get it. I completely understand uh, the frustrations that people have but it is a means by which we can also advance the struggle uh, of Black people. And it means not surrendering to the forces of anti-democracy and even fascism uh, that are on the move, one of which is through the vehicle of disenfranchisement and taking over uh, government through non-democratic means. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, one of the things that is consistently ignored within the so-called mainstream of, of, of American politics 
uh, is what is actually an extraordinary diversity of opinion within Black America. This recently was shown quite vividly uh, in uh, the wake of the George Floyd uh, protests with the generation of uh, uh, what were alleged to be anti-racist reading lists, uh, but, but one who is familiar with publishing and, and uh, black literature and scholarship would immediately note that uh, with few exceptions, almost all those books were books that were newly published or, or published within the last five years. And conspicuously absent um, were uh, black uh, intellectuals and scholars who like Albert Murray, like uh, Melvin B. Tolson, like uh, uh, George Schuyler, uh, may have had a more conservative bent. Uh, and where I'm going with that is that one of the most uh, uh, brilliant and buoyant chapters in uh, your new book, uh, $20 and Change, has to do with symbolism. Symbolism, not just on the currency, but how it's used as a language right here in, in the United States. Uh, now, again, centering on this uh, oscillation between Jackson and Tubman, the popular culture in the United States, the consumerist advertising driven culture has always exploited and uh, degraded, appropriated, imitated, uh, mimicked and memed significant struggle and figures of struggle within Black America. So obviously, getting back to the diversity of opinion, which is so rarely represented within, you know, corporate streams of media, how does one approach uh, this particular issue on Tubman, but, but, but the larger spectrum of issues invited in it? Because it happens over and over and over again. And yet, uh, the pushback against it um, is, is infrequent. So you address it in the book, but could you address some of that for us today? The, the use or misuse of symbols and signs of black freedom struggle and uh, how that falls within this particular dynamic of, of, of the uh, question on the currency. Uh, thank you. So uh, symbols are important. They're mobilizing, they're educational. There are narratives about uh, society and life. And who controls what symbols are presented has significant control over other areas of life. So symbolism isn't separate from power. It is a critical component of it. And the resistance that we saw, for example, to changing symbols, to get rid of, getting rid of statues and other monuments and acclaims to segregationists, to Confederates, uh, to white supremacists uh, is challenged because they were put there for a reason. And that reason was to accent and to embellish and to uh, foster the power relations uh, that exist in society. So it's really critical uh, that there are alternatives and counter narratives to these, to these symbols. Uh, but it also takes the place of whose voices are chosen to be heard. Uh, so for example, uh, I think it was over the summer, uh, Joe Biden had historians in 
to talk about the dangers of democracy and kind of where the country is at. Not one single historian of color. Mm -hmm. And this completely counters the entire history of the country where people of color have really been at the forefront of advocating, fighting for, dying for uh, democracy. And so that just kind of underscores the voices that have to be in the room, the voices Mm -hmm. that have to be given an opportunity for those narratives, those counter narratives that play a very different kind of role uh, than what we uh, normally see. And so I think the the movement in the uh, 2020, where uh, the changing of names of buildings and streets and uh, getting rid of statues uh, didn't start in 2020. There's a long, long history of resistance by native people, uh, other people of color uh, against all of these uh, really white supremacist authoritarian symbols uh, that again are not disconnected from uh, power relations in society. Mm-hmm. And 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 uh, just to emphasize uh, a particular aspect of of that equation, I mean the, the the Confederacy was a declared enemy of the United States of America. What other nation on earth builds statues and celebrates their declared enemies? But I I, I, I want to. But I would add on that too. Not only uh, built statues yeah. and monuments and named buildings and and streets and such, also did not um, make those who committed that pay a price. Mm-hmm. The leaders of the Confederacy after the Civil War were essentially left to go and retire and enjoy their life, however That's they right. chose to do it. That's and right. that, of course, creates the conditions under which then you rewrite what actually happened during the Civil War, mm-hmm. that it wasn't about slavery, it was about an overreaching government, that it was about states' rights, when in fact it was about slavery. Mm-hmm. But we battle that because the forces who led that were not purged and were not did not pay the consequences of what they tried to do. There, there, there was no de facto denazification committee, in other words, and and, and and that and and that and that that led us to the point where 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 that that, that produced a, a person uh, like Strom Thurmond, like right. Jesse Helms, right. like these others who who are in power today. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, I know we have uh, some folks who are eager to ask you some questions, so. I'll bring our portion of the program around uh, full circle and then invite Peter to return to, to, to read some of those questions. Uh, but at the beginning of this conversation, as I was introducing you and your book, I mentioned that we find ourselves historically in a situation that is not unlike triage, like battlefield triage. And I described your book, uh, $20 and Change, as being very much what I perceive as a kind of laying on of the hands uh, to wounds, to uh, very sacred wounds. And that uh, as, as, as your reader, uh, what I gathered was uh, medicinal impulses on your part that led to the creation, the research uh, and the structure and uh, writing of this book. So before we pivot to uh, folks who have uh, questions for you, Clarence, 
Could, could we talk a little bit of, uh, about that? Am I intuiting this correctly? <laughs> Are there some medicinal impulses on your part to uh, uh, bring about uh, 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 this extraordinary work? Well, part of this was uh, also uh, to teach my son about not only Harriet Tubman, but black female leadership. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, at the time he was six or seven, you know, when I was working on this, but I wanted him to uh, not only kind of honor his great grandmother, uh, but also to uh, be someone who really did think deeply about uh, history, did think deeply about uh, looking at, you know, how this country uh, has evolved. So there, you know, so there was a personal reason mm -hmm. uh, in trying to write this book in a particular kind of way and to honor uh, all the people that are mentioned in the book uh, who have played these, you know, these really important roles, some well known, some not known at all, right. uh, but who again are critical uh, in the story that has to be told and what all of that means. And again, all of this comes, you know, centered, uh, doesn't center, but um, you know, emerges out of this discussion about Harriet Tubman on the $20 bill and, you know, the range of views on that. So the book uh, looks at people who are in opposition to that as well, not just your traditional conservatives who knee-jerk opposition, uh, but even among uh, African-Americans, uh, yeah. including progressives, uh, who have a range of views uh, from fear of exploitation and performative anti-racism all the way across to recognizing and applauding uh, and uh, happy that, that Harry Tubman uh, will be replacing, at least on the front, uh, Andrew Jackson. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, we're, we're coming in on the last quarter hour. So uh, Peter, uh, over there at the bookstore, I'll invite you to uh, rejoin and, and uh, read uh, from some of the questions in the chat. And again, uh, I want to extend my my thanks to you, Clarence, for your generosity with us this evening. Sure. So uh, Lucy uh, likens Trump being free to walk among us as a walking Confederate statue. Uh, <laughs> uh, folks, please do post your questions in the chat. That is how we're going to be receiving questions tonight um actually i have a, a question in terms of of how you structured the book and and how you pulled in threads of your work of your life's work to, to kind of bring it together could you talk a little bit about just process and in, in, in bringing together such an amazing book okay okay thank you uh first just let me say i think lucy's absolutely right trump needs to be held accountable trump and everybody that organized uh, the effort to overthrow uh, the government. When you do not uh, hold accountable those kind of behaviors, they do not go away. They do not disappear. They metastasize, they grow, and they continue. There should absolutely be uh, accountability. Uh, in terms of, of the book, uh, I approach my writing uh, as a storyteller and that I try to kind of blend not only the stories I uncover as I do research, but how does that fit in with kind of my own uh, experiences uh, here in the US and, and my global experiences and my family experiences. 
And so the book is kind of, you know, weaves those sort of in and out. Uh, for example, I talk about the high school that I went to. I went to a high school in Detroit that was uh, very famous and very uh, iconic. It was, it was a top school uh, and it was named after uh, what we knew at the time, uh, former governor of Michigan. So yeah, okay, whatever. Uh, but then uh, discovered uh, recently, uh, as did many others, that this was somebody who was also in Andrew Jackson's administration and had been central to the development of the Indian Removal Act, which was the uh, policy in the 1830s. Uh, even though it was rejected by the Supreme Court, Andrew Jackson ignored it and it initiated this mass and violent uh, removal of uh, Native Americans, uh, ultimately leading to the uh, Trail of Tears. Uh, this individual should not have a school named after him. Uh, particularly in Detroit, where the school is, is about 90% African-American. He was a slave owner as well. Uh, let me add that in there. Uh, so again, once you know, you have to do something. You can't unknow. So, you know, we didn't know when I was in school, we would have protested and demonstrated at the time. But once you do know, you at least have to raise your voice uh, along those lines. And so that's what I tried to, again, incorporate into the, into the writing. We have a, a question from Audrey. Do you see Harriet Tubman as a maroon or as an abolitionist or as both? Uh, both and more. Uh, I've uh, taken to call her an uh, agent of democracy uh, because she really, you know, I thought when you step back and look at, you know, all that she was doing, uh, and all she was, you know, putting her life on the line for, it really was to create a very genuine, inclusive, multiracial, multigender uh, democracy. And she was willing to fight for that. Uh, she knew every important figure from the 1840s to when she died, uh, and they knew her. Uh, John Brown, for example, uh, who led uh, effort in 1859 at Harper's Ferry to try to ignite a uh, uprising of people who were enslaved. Uh, she had been considered and was considering being part of that for various reasons uh, she wasn't able to. But when she opened up her home for the aged and infirm, one of the rooms was named after John Brown. So she reached back to that legacy to make it clear that this is where she stood. She wasn't backing down uh, at all on that. And so, you know, that's where, you know, you see just the power of, of this woman, again, throughout her entire life. Uh, let's see, any more questions, folks? Uh, now is the time to ask. Justin, do you have any reflections while we're waiting for some more to trickle through? Yeah, you know, uh, Clarence, we were talking just a few moments ago about the uh, use or misuse of imagery uh, symbols uh, that emerge from uh, black struggle as, as, as they make their way into advertising consumer and commercial culture. One of the uh, areas that, of, of controversy surrounding the uh, Andrew Jackson, Harriet Tubman question, which you explore in your book. 
But I, I would like to expand that a little bit to uh, areas that I think are probably more familiar to all of us, uh, not just here in the United States, but internationally. And that has to do with the question of black music. Now the question of black music in the Americas, uh, uh, no one, uh, even the most dyed in the wool racist would uh, refute uh, that it has expansively changed the character of international art over the last hundred years, easily the most uh, uh, productive and um, uh, expansive uh, agent of influence over uh, the art of the last hundred years. But my point being this is that just as with these images and symbols of black struggle, oftentimes the messages and the meaning within the poetry and the music, once it makes its way outside of black culture, once it makes its way onto recordings, records and is distributed, the original meaning is often completely lost. And, 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 and what I mean by that is that the, the use of uh, code language of uh, double, triple, quadruple entendre, uh, the mastery of tonal language to uh, imply or suspend meaning, all of these are things that characterize black music and poetry. Going back to Paul Lawrence Dunbar, We Wear the Mask, right up to Smokey Robinson and the Miracles, The Tracks of My Tears. This is a very serious problem and it's touched on obviously with, with the, the, the struggle that you illuminate here, but you, could you offer some thoughts on the more uh, expansive and larger picture of the, of the conflict that I'm describing? Okay, so, uh, so another little secret of my writing. So everything I write, uh, especially all the books I write, uh, there's always a music angle uh, right. that I throw in there. So, you know, when I wrote the Black History of the White House, you know, there's a whole chapter on Black music at the White House. And right. when, you know, Duke Ellington played there, uh, I wrote a book on, on drugs and talked about the blues song uh, that came out around uh, from African-Americans in the 1920s and 1930s. Uh, so in this book, I also talk about uh, there are groups that play music uh, to Harriet Tubman, right? Uh, so music is really, uh, to me, very uh, telling of the ways in which there are multiplicity of uh, arenas of struggle and arenas of uh, resistance. And so we see this with the spread of the music around the world. So jazz, of course, uh, comes to the rest of the world in the uh, coming out of World War One, right? The international collapse of the world order becomes the opening door for jazz to end up in France and in Germany and in Europe. Uh, Hip hop played a similar kind of role uh, going starting in the 1970s and 80s of spreading around the world, but then being appropriated for the kind of resistance and the struggles that people had in their own circumstances and, and situations. So you get this, again, multiple layered uh, appropriation and use of the music, sometimes as directly imitative, other times as completely reworked, uh, but all legitimate uh, in my eyes, because music becomes, again, one of these vehicles for which people express their aspirations, their hopes, 
and their uh, forms of resistance to uh, being uh, marginalized and being oppressed. Cornelius has a question. Any reflections on the cinematic portrayals of Harriet Tubman? Uh, yeah, so they they pretty much limit her to uh, what happened uh, during the uh, slave era. Uh, the last film that came out uh, called Harriet uh, stops with the Combahee uh, River uh, military mission uh, that Justin and I were talking about uh, earlier. Uh, so that would leave you with a strong impression of what challenges and uh, uh, what she did during the during that period, but it also freezes her, uh, and that to me is a problem because then you don't get the uh, broader sense of what she was doing as we talked about around these other issues and concerns, or how she had to struggle even though she played such an important role uh, in the abolitionist movement, in the uh, uh, freedom, in the Underground Railroad movement uh, and in the Civil War, but she had financial issues for a decade, uh, which never should have happened uh, given you know, what she had accomplished and what you know, she had done. Uh, but none of that is there in those films about her. It's kind of creating uh, hero but without context uh, and with you know very narrowly constructed uh, narrative. I think we have time for one more question. Rachel states at a time and Martin Luther King was supporting the human rights movement, decolonization in Africa showed great promise for an enforceable declaration of economic and social rights that might be needed to genuinely respect political and civil rights. But this movement was largely sidelined. And here we are today with the US being part party to very few international human rights conventions. Are you optimistic about a contemporary pan-African black human rights movement taking the lead in the international human rights movement? Mm -hmm. So that's a great question. So I would argue that Pan-Africanism uh, has uh, two forms. It has the capital P, capital A formal movement in which there are declarative statements about being Pan-Africanist. And some of that uh, certainly still exists, uh, but I would argue there's a more smaller uh, form of Pan-Africanism where it's engaging in the international arena and keeping these links and keeping these ties alive. Uh, and I speak with this bit very personally uh, because this is much of what I do. Uh, I teach international relations focused on uh, racial justice and human rights. And so I'm, and I direct our program of international affairs uh, at Howard University. And so I'm always trying to put students on planes and sending them everywhere in the world uh, so that they can begin this kind of engagement uh, and, and, and experience. And then uh, my own work uh, takes me uh, to Europe, to Asia, uh, to Latin America uh, and, and to Africa. Uh, so I don't see a wall between 
uh, these movements. And there are lots and lots of African-Americans, again, some in networks and in organizations and nonprofits and groups, uh, others at more kind of uh, individual action uh, uh, work uh, that's going on. Uh, and it's probably not as much in the broader political discussion of Black politics, but all of that is uh, certainly going on. Uh, and your question is really relevant uh, as now we're in an era where the ability to communicate and network uh, is so facilitated uh, by the technology that we have today uh, that it really uh, helps facilitate this work. Well, we are at the top of the hour. Thank you both for an enlightening, very erudite evening. Thank you, Justin, for doing the honors. Uh, you kept it going along really smooth. Dr. Lusain, congratulations. It has been a pleasure and an honor to be able to publish your book and to have you here with us tonight. Also want to express our gratitude to all of you in the audience for joining us. As always, you help complete the circle. Also want to remind everybody this event has been made possible by support from the City Lights Foundation, continuing the legacy of our founder, the late Lawrence Ferlinghetti, through public events like this one, our publishing program and educational outreach, all dedicated to sustaining a vibrant community of readers, writers, and independent thinkers. So um, take care, everyone. Hope to see you all again soon. Dr. Lusain, I will leave you with the last word. So, uh, again, I want to thank everyone. Uh, again, it's important to me to be able to have exchanges and discussions uh, and engage and, and to uh, get feedback from everyone. So, so thank you. Everybody have a, a great uh, break and a great holiday. Uh, and thank you, City Lights. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.